So Money episode 1183, Jennifer Barrett, author of Think Like a Breadwinner. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I looked around and I realized that we were in a completely unsustainable situation, right? And I couldn't afford to get us out of it. And so that prompted me to start looking at, you know, what was driving my money choices? Because I thought up until then that I was doing a lot right, right? Like I had a good job. I was an editor at a national magazine. I had a steady paycheck. I had a little 401k. I was contributing, you know, half the rent, half the bills, had a little bit of savings and thought I was doing okay. And what I realized in that moment was like, that's not really enough to support all the things I want in my life. Welcome to So Money, everybody. We are tackling one of my favorite subjects, female breadwinners. Nearly half of working women in the US are now their household's main breadwinner. Did you know this? But most women still are not raised to think like breadwinners. And our guest today has a new book addressing this. Financial expert Jennifer Barrett is the author of Think Like a Breadwinner, a wealth building manifesto for women who want to earn more and worry less. It's a great compliment to my book, When She Makes More, which is all about helping women and couples manage their relationships when she makes more. But even if you don't make more, Jennifer argues, it's important for all women to take on the mindset of a breadwinner. What does that actually mean? How does it play out? That's where our conversation begins. We cover so much ground, how to never be stuck in a bad job, a bad relationship because you're afraid you can't afford to leave, how to have the ability to say no when you want to, how to have the confidence that you can achieve the life you want, buy the dream home, have the child, travel the world, retire early without having to depend on anyone else. Jennifer comes to this book with her own hard-won experiences, and she includes those in the book as well as in-depth interviews with dozens of women with the hopes of breaking barriers down and helping close the gender gaps in wages, wealth, and leadership for good. More about Jennifer. She is Chief Education Officer at Acorns, a financial wellness app with more than 8 million users and the founding editor of its popular money site, Grow. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two sons. Here's Jennifer Barrett. Jennifer Barrett, welcome back to So Money. It's been a couple of years at least, but worth the wait because now you are an author. Your book, Think Like a Breadwinner, is officially out and congratulations. What a big deal. Thank you so much. It's really been an exciting time and I'm happy to be here. Really, I mean this is my this is my love language. You're writing my love language. The whole the world of breadwinners and um first tell us about what prompted you to write this because I I was watching a TED talk that you gave prior to this book coming out that I feel like may have been the catapult for this book, but you tell us what was the genesis. 
Yeah, I mean, I have been thinking about this for a while. And, you know, what I realized is as women, and then you know this, most of us are culturally conditioned not to think of ourselves as breadwinners, as like being capable of providing the lives we want for ourselves without feeling like we need to depend on anyone else to help us. And I feel like that really keeps us from making the kinds of choices with our money that truly serve and support us. Like it keeps us back from our our earning and our wealth building potential in ways that we don't even realize. Um, but the genesis for, for this book, um, I mean, it goes way back uh, more than a decade ago to my own wake up call, um, which happened in my early thirties. And at the time um, I was married and we had our first son, Zachary, he was about 18 months old and we were living in this thank you, tiny one bedroom apartment in New York, which is something a lot of people here can relate to <laughs> sharing our only bedroom with him. And, um, and I just remember one night I was up rocking him, trying to get him back to sleep. And I looked around and I realized that we were in completely unsustainable situation. Right. And I couldn't afford to get us out of it. And so that prompted me to start looking at, you know, what was driving my money choices? Because I thought up until then that I was doing a lot right, right? Like I had a good job. I was an editor at a national magazine. I had a steady paycheck. I had a little 401k. I was contributing, you know, half the rent, half the bills, had a little bit of savings and thought I was doing okay. And what I realized in that moment was like, that's not really enough to support all the things I want in my life. And why was I not taking those extra steps to save and invest for those things? And uh, I realized that deep down, subconsciously, I was kind of leaning on my my husband to take the lead there. And that goes all the way back to my childhood because it's the role my own dad had played. So I realized that. And then I thought, wow, I wonder if how things would have been different for me if I had been raised to think like a breadwinner too. Like how would my money choices and my career choices have been different and the answer to that question sort of propelled me onto a whole new trajectory financially. It just completely transformed my relationship with money. And, and that was really the genesis of the book. Then I did research. I realized, obviously, I was not alone as much as right. I, you know, in, in, in having these revelations and then moving into the main breadwinner role, I realized so many other women were too and did a ton of research and interviewed over 100 women. So it's not just my story, but that's really what kicked it off. So back to that moment in the one bedroom apartment in New York City up in up at night, looking around your tight quarters and feeling stuck. Your husband was at the time the breadwinner. How was he feeling? Was this an isolated feeling that you had of stuckness or was he also feeling similarly? Well, we were uh, at that point both in journalism. So <laughs> neither one of us was making a huge amount of money at that point. But I, I think it's interesting because when we first moved in together, he was making quite a bit more than me. He was working at a startup and then the startup went under um, and the gap started to close between our incomes. But I didn't shift, you know, that didn't shift my perspective. Um, and he was thinking to thinking like a breadwinner in a lot of ways in the sense that he was he was investing, he was saving, he was making those choices, but he had lost his job and then found another one that didn't pay as well and was still sort of getting back on his feet. Um, whereas I was really feeling the urgency, you know, because I wanted a second child. I wanted us to be able to stay in New York and to move into a bigger place that could accommodate a growing family. And so I was feeling, I think, a little more pressure at that point than than maybe he was. But I don't want to give the impression that he wasn't contributing to. I think it's right. just that I wasn't really doing my part in making sure that we could have the things that mattered most. 
Yes. I mean, I ask that because I think what I'm noticing re- more recently is that when we talk about things like female breadwinnership and the pay gap and things like that, we've been centralizing a lot of this conversation around women. And now we're realizing, hey, we need the men to also get educated, get on board. And so I want to definitely talk about your advice for how women can think like breadwinners. But before we get into that, any thoughts on what the men can be thinking about as you're encouraging women to acclimate to this mindset shift? Yeah. I mean, I think generally as a culture, we haven't quite caught up to the fact that there's been this paradigm shift in the breadwinning model. So, you know, in more than 40% of households with kids under 18, the moms are the sole or primary breadwinner. Um, But if you look at survey data, I, I think as a country, we still haven't adapted to this new reality where so many more women are moving into this role. And we still sort of pigeonhole women as caregivers and men as breadwinners to, to both of our detriments, really. Um, because what I've learned over the last decade is just how beneficial it can be for both partners to be able to experience both of those roles fully. Um, you know, and I look at my own dad, my dad was the sole breadwinner and he has a lot of regrets about not being more involved with us as kids. We've talked about it a lot. And, and I look at my husband and I look at the relationship he has with our, now we have two sons and I think I'm, I'm so grateful for that, for them and, and for him. And so I think that's where we start is to stop pigeonholing ourselves in these particular roles and really thinking about like what, what works best for you as a couple, as a family, what's important to you? Like, what are the pieces that are really important to you and what are you willing to let go of? Going back again to that evening where you had this wake up call, this light bulb moment, what what was the first thing that you changed mm-hmm. or what was the first step that you took? And maybe that is paralleled in the, in the advice that you give to women broadly, but what was some, what was your first step? The very first step was the next morning, true story. I got up, I got a piece of paper and I literally wrote out what I wanted my life to look like in like, you know, ballpark three to five years, what was most important to me. Um, And I really thought about like, what is the, what does the home look like? Like all the details I could put into it. Where is this home? Um, What am I doing for work? What does my family look like? So it was like having two kids being in a, I had a very specific vision of what this home looked like, where it would be. I wanted to live in Brooklyn. Um, And then I started pricing out all of this. So I had a pretty good sense of what childcare cost at that point, because we already had one son. And I started looking at listings to see how much it would cost to buy a place. And I, um, I had a little bit of a breakdown. (laughs) I mean, I was like, Um, because I think at that moment, I really deeply felt the impact of all the money choices that I had made up until that point. Like it really hit me um, at at a level that I I had never experienced before. And I realized just how big the gap really was between where I was and where I wanted to be in the near future. Um, So that required some pretty dramatic changes. And this won't be the same for everybody. But for me, one of the things I found out not long after I returned from Uh, maternity leave, and this was also a huge aha moment, was I found out that someone who was in a similar role to me with just a couple years more experience was earning 
uh, 50% more than I was. It was a woman or a man. It, it's a woman, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she is actually the breadwinner in her, um, she's in a, a same sex partnership. And I, I think she's the breadwinner. I've actually wanted to go back and talk to her more about this. Mm-hmm. But at the time I just thought, Oh my God. It was like being punched in the stomach. I thought, you know, I had all these ideas about if I work really hard, I'll be rewarded. I hadn't really negotiated. And all of a sudden that just, it, it hit me. I I felt so stupid. I felt so stupid that I hadn't negotiated harder and that I'd sort of thought I'll just be rewarded by working hard. And I felt like I had been so loyal to my employer and I really loved working there, but I realized like no employer is that loyal to you. So all of these things hit me and I thought I need to, I don't think I'm going to be able to close the gap where I am. I think I need to find a new job and really negotiate well this time around. And so I, they were, um, the magazine was struggling. They gave out, they were giving out compensation packages and I, I wasn't on the list, but I advocated to be added to the list and, and took one, <laughs> which is unusual. They were like, are you sure about this? <laughs> Please lay me off. <laughs> no. Um, I, but I really, I was a little worried about the magazine, but more so I thought, oh my God, if I can get this compensation package, I invested the, really the entire thing in the market, um, in some really basic funds, like an S and P 500 fund, NASDAQ, Dow, like just index funds, and then, um, started freelancing and just hustled and I made 50% more. So I basically closed that gap in one year. And then I took a job in management and, within three years had doubled my salary. So that was one of the biggest jumping off points was getting really clear on, on how much money I needed to save and invest, getting clear on the fact that I needed a new job, finding a better paying job, negotiating a really good salary there, and then just saving and investing everything I could over those few years. Yeah. It sounds to me like the steps are first, know that you're capable of this role, right? Emotionally. And, you know, if there is resistance to this, maybe it's just in your head. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think society and the world is needs to catch up. There is this reluctance on the part of men and women at large in society in our patriarchal gender stereotype loving world (laughs) that, you know, that there is resistance and and we see the data, but believing it in yourself and having a plan, knowing the numbers, reverse engineering it, advocating for yourself. Tell me in essence, what is it, what does it mean to you to think like a breadwinner? Well, I think really um, thinking like a breadwinner is just making the kinds of money choices that will ensure you can take care of yourself financially throughout your life. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it, but it's really, I I like to apply the breadwinner mindset to really every aspect of your finances. So it's like, when you look at credit, it's, it's not looking at it in the way that it's been sold to women, which is like, use your credit cards as a means to close the gap between the life you can afford and the life you aspire to, you know, which is often how it's been marketed to us. But really looking at credit as like building credit is a way to lower the interest you will pay when you take out a loan, for example, to buy a home, which is an investment, or you take out a loan to start a business, which is an investment in yourself and in the belief that you will grow that business. And if you take even a a mortgage, for example, you know, if you have a better credit score, if you have the highest um, kind of 
quartile of credit scores and you can get the best rates, you can save like 40,000 plus, I think is the average on an average 30 year mortgage. So this is like significant amounts of money that we're talking about here. So, you know, that's just using the lens on credit and then also just being really strategic about your credit cards, for example. So taking advantage of rewards points and taking advantage of cash back um, and making sure you pay off those credit cards each month. If you do it smartly, you can actually make money from your credit cards rather than paying them for the privilege of you know, using them. So that's one way, but also you can apply the same lens to negotiating, right? Think of, you know, you're not just negotiating for yourself, you're negotiating for your future, you're negotiating for a, your family potentially. And so when you think of it that way, the stakes are a little bit higher. And I think there's even more reason to negotiate for every last dollar. Same thing with investing. I mean, you know, we get the message a lot of times as women, I feel like it's the message, the prescription really that we get is like, get a job, get married, save a little bit for a rainy day, save for retirement. And, and that's not, um, that's not enough. It really leaves out all the time between these like short term savings goals and retirement, which is decades. And so, you know, we have to close that gap. We really need to start thinking about investing as just something we do, something we do with every single paycheck we get. So we build wealth and the more wealth we build, the more choices we have. And, and that's really a different way of thinking about money than I think most of us were raised to think about money as, you know. Yeah. It's not just a nice to have, it's a must have. I think your story, your personal journey is so exemplary, Jennifer, because you made this pivot as a mother. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, um, again, goes against traditional thought that when you become a mom, you can also become the breadwinner, you know, that usually we think of becoming a parent, especially a mom, and that being uh, the death knell to your career or (laughs) really, I mean, really, that I have to choose, right? And so many women had to in this past year, they had to choose between earning and or or taking care of a family member Mm -hmm. or family members. And What is your advice to working moms out there who want to think like a breadwinner and maybe even be the breadwinner, especially in in today's economic climate? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say, and you know, you know this yourself, is it's entirely possible to be a very involved uh, mother and be a breadwinner. It is, I mean, I've been doing it for over a decade. I've been the primary breadwinner for my family. I feel very connected to my sons um, and so I do think that that message that you have to choose, um, you know, it's not it's not binary. And and I think that message does us a great disservice. That said, um, you know, I, I think the effects of the pandemic are temporary. Right. We were in an extraordinary circumstance where child care and, and school in school options um, were going away. And we know from the data that women, again, were picking up most of the housework, most of the childcare responsibilities, even when they earned more. That was the one that really got me. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of this is making sure that your partner is, you know, picking up a, a fair share of, of both and having those conversations. But I think the pandemic really shone a light on this. So like the, these, these extraordinary circumstances are temporary, yes. But women were struggling with a lot of this stuff as you know, like before the pandemic happened. And so one thing that I hope comes out of this pandemic is that we have more honest conversations about this because a lot of this invisible work that women were taking on is no longer invisible, right? When you are living 24-7 in the same space, 
and someone has to take care of all these things, it's no longer invisible. So I'm encouraged by the fact that a lot of people are saying, you know, they've had, they're having these conversations and men are often realizing, wow, it takes a whole lot more to run a household than I realized. Because oftentimes, and I know I was guilty of this, is I would just pick up things and not make a big deal about them, not talk about them. And so if you don't ask for help, sometimes, you know, your partner may not even realize how much work you're doing. So I think that's a part of it. But, you know, just getting back to thinking like a breadwinner, I I think we're going to see a surge of women going back into the workforce. And um, I think I I would hope. Save themselves as a (laughs) a way to save themselves. Right. Because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know so many moms don't want to light their kitchens on fire. Uh, (laughs) It's been a very busy, busy time at home. Yes. Yes, it has. And I think the other thing that's really happened in this pandemic is that we've become very clear on how critical women's income is. And I think a lot of times employers, um, partners sometimes took for granted how critical that income was. As a country, we've sort of assumed a woman's income is secondary um, and treated it that way. And I think this pandemic really brought home the fact, you know, when women started dropping out of the workforce and economists were talking about the billions of dollars of damage this can inflict on our economy, everyone started paying more attention. And so I hope that as we move back into the office in some sense of normalcy here, um, that employers they start to recognize us more and that their policies and the way that they pay and promote women starts to reflect this because I really do believe that a lot of those things are still based on this outdated assumption that a man's income is more important, that the man will be the breadwinner and the woman will be the caregiver and will be stepping back at some point. And, and that's just not the case for so many families anymore. We need to really update our thinking around this. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look for a silver lining in all of this, it's perhaps that institutions, government, companies could no longer turn a blind eye to the fact that women were putting up so much so much of the time and effort in making the world go around, frankly. Yes. One of the things I regret not having included in my book, When She Makes More, is that I didn't offer recommendations for what corporate America and our bureaucracy can provide. You shed a light on some of those changes that you'd like to see, but um, specifically, like, what do we really need for this to come to fruition for really for women to think like breadwinners in a world that is accepting of that? Yes, 100%. So there are both internal and external barriers, and I address both in the book. The internal barriers we sort of talked about, which is that we were socialized not to think of ourselves like breadwinners. Um, We're socialized to think of our income as being less important, and so that will inform a lot of our money choices subconsciously. So we need to be aware of that, and then we can kind of shift our thinking around it. But there are very real external barriers, too. And, you know, one of the biggest, honestly, this, like, it makes me crazy that we are still having this discussion around mandatory paid leave. It just feels like something, you know, we should have sorted out decades ago and somehow we're still talking about this, but we are the only industrialized nation that doesn't have mandated paid leave. And I think, you know, we can learn at this point from a lot of other countries, particularly Nordic countries who are just like literally decades ahead of us on this one, where they don't just have paid leave, but they have specified paid leave for each parent and a use it all or lose it policy for dads. And they have a much higher adaptation rate than other countries do around that. And we've already been able to see the results of that by just, you know, you they've got decades now of data. And we know that that closed the gender wage gap. It closed the gender labor participation 
gap. So, you know, we can enjoy the same things here. We can learn from, you know, from what they've, what they've done and the results they've had and try to do the same thing here. That's the first step. I mean, that is really like just the bare minimum here is to implement implement a paid leave policy, a mandatory paid leave policy. And I think there's a lot of momentum around that now. And when I do feel like we're probably closer now than, than we have been in a very long time to getting something passed in the coming year. That's a good start. I think also we need to address really all the infrastructure to support working parents. So that means universal pre-K. It means subsidized child care. It means universal after-school programs. I mean, the idea right now, if you think of like a two-income family where both parents are working full-time, the idea that the school day ends three hours before any parents, right. almost any parents work day. I mean, some people have unusual hours, but like a standard work day is insane. And if you look at the number of days off, even during the calendar year, I mean, I don't need to tell you this. It is like, nobody has that much paid vacation time to be able to match the days off that children have from school. Nobody. I mean, unless you're in an extraordinary circumstances where you have unlimited paid time off, um, the vast majority of Americans don't have that kind of vacation time. And so we need to get to the point where we're mapping school schedules a little more closely to work schedules. Um, and we're, we're very far apart right now. I know that a lot of states have kind of picked up the mantle here around universal pre-K and we've had good results. Um, same with after school care, but that really shouldn't be on like a PTA or a city in particular to implement that. These are really, these should be nationwide policies because they benefit so many people, so many working families. Um, and, and so we've got a lot of, a lot of work to do in, in all those areas. Amen. <laughs> I get very Jennifer, passionate about this. Right. I can tell. I can hear it in your voice. And I can see it too because we're, we're able to see each other. So oftentimes when I meet moms who are not working after maybe having careers and they say you know, their story is I chose to step away from my career. I want to become a full-time mom and caregiver they say two things to me. First, as if they have to like defend this and and maybe it's because they know me and they feel like they need to like, you know, explain themselves to me. But they're like, look, Farnoosh, I made less than childcare or I made just as much as childcare costs and I did the back of the napkin math and it just didn't make sense for me to continue working. Number two, I didn't really love my job. And for me, the latter talking point it's where I feel like I've had an epiphany where I'm like, okay, we've heard the whole, like, I've done the math stuff before, but this other aspect of I didn't really love my career is an interesting excuse. And, and so I've taken that now and I, I use that now in talking to young women who want to say, okay, they come to me like, how do I have a career and a family and all the things? And I'm like, well, you better love your job. Yes. You need to invest in your career as much as possible with gusto. And that's not to say that you ignore the sort of family planning that you want, but that um, you don't also neglect, not at the cost of your career. So any advice around that part of it, that piece of it, because I find that that is coming up a lot. And I wonder if that's because they're not thinking like breadwinners as they think about their careers and how it's going to fit in, quote unquote, fit in. Yes, I think that's a big part of it. And when I hear that someone did the back of the napkin math and realized that childcare would be almost as much as they are making... I always wonder, wait, where's your partner in all of this? Why were you not figuring, you know, like, why weren't you counting your partner's income too? Why is this all on you um, is the first part. And then also, my God, 
it's not just a like one-to-one equation, right? You're not, if you step out of the workforce for a year or two or three, you're not just missing like those paychecks. There is this exponential effect. We, you know, we, we talk about this. It's like you are holding yourself back now on future raises. You are not contributing to your retirement accounts for those three years, right? There are so many other things that you miss out on. And we know, I mean, research shows when women step out of the workforce and go back in, they usually take a pay cut. So the impact, you are not just losing whatever it is, the $40,000, $50,000 a year that you are giving up to stay home with your kids. You are giving up a lot more than that. And I, you know, I'm not judging, I really am not judging people for their choices. I stayed home for a while with my first child. We had, I was fortunate enough to have an extended leave, but it was also mostly unpaid. So not much different (laughs) than stepping out, except that, you know, they guaranteed a role for me when I came back. So I was fortunate. But before you do that, I just want people to make informed choices, right? Because it's really not so simple as like, I make not that much more than a caregiver would. So why would I stay in my job? It's that is not really the way to look at it at all, because your career spans for decades and stepping out of it has an exponential effect on your future earning potential. So that's one piece of it and your ability to build wealth. You're not you're not building wealth during that period if you're not investing. And the second piece of it, to your point, is that, you know, God, there's two there are almost two separate issues. Right. If you're not happy in your career, make a change in your career. You know, the answer is very rarely to just step out of it entirely. It's really looking at your career and saying, what are the changes I need to make to be happier in my career? Because again, your career, this is a decades long venture. This is not a, I'm going to work for five years, but I'm not really happy. So I'm going to step out and then maybe I'll start again. If you step out of a career you hate, imagine how much harder it is to step back in. Because now you don't want to step back into where you were. You were unhappy, right? So now there's even less incentive to get back into it. Um, So much better, I say, to solve the problem from within. Stay in your career and, and redirect it in a way that makes you happier and more fulfilled before you even think about stepping out. So glad to have you on the show. This is the stuff that really gets me going. And I know my listeners as well. Before we go, though, I want to ask, as I'm sure... You, as you mentioned, you you plowed through so much research. You talked to over a hundred women. What did you walk away with learning for the first time, or was there a breakthrough for you in this process? I'm sure there were many, but was what's one that was really significant? Yes, there were definitely breakthroughs. And what's so funny is you think, I mean, I've been in this role for a while, and I kind of thought I had a real handle on it. But even as I was doing research, I was having these moments of, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, I did that. You know, And one of the big ones was when I was researching office housework and all this data around women taking on more non-promotable work while men take on more promotable work. And that's one factor that contributes to men being promoted at a higher rate than women are. And I was reading all of these examples and I realized that I was still doing this to some degree where I was constantly saying yes and picking up things that were not in my, I would say, in my immediate job description and that were not really counting towards the metrics by which I was being measured and by which I would be promoted or given a raise or a bonus or anything like that. Um, And so that was a big one for me. You know, I, I know that I have some reluctance around uh, delegating, and this is, you know, something that research shows a lot of women have um, challenges with, and this sort of tendency to try and do everything yourself in order, partly, I think, to prove your value. And that kind of comes back again to 
imposter syndrome and all of these things that we talk about is feeling like you need to constantly prove your value. And I've, I've gotten much better to that, you know, on that front um, and much more confident in my role. And so I think as I became more confident, I was able to let go of that. But the office housework was a big one. Things like cleaning up after a meeting or setting up meetings or joining these committees that really have nothing to do with your role, they don't benefit you. They're eating up your time and your energy and they're not benefiting you in terms of helping to get you to that next level. Um, And yet we often do so many of those things, not even consciously. So that, that was a big one for me. Yeah, that's a great reminder because um, not only does that not help with your bottom line, you know, it's stop trying to look for ways to continuously validate yourself. Like you're good enough. You are good enough. Yes. And not only that, it takes away from the things that you've been hired to do, right? You can't do your best work in the areas that you were hired for if you were constantly expending your energy and all these other things. And our time is just too valuable right? It's just too valuable to be wasting it on things that aren't productive and and aren't helping us get closer to our goals or, you know, allowing us to spend more time with our family and doing the things we love. Well, I encourage everybody to pick up Think Like a Breadwinner, Time Well Spent, Time Well Invested. Jennifer Barrett, thank you so much. It's been nice to reconnect and congratulations. Thanks so much, Farnish. Really enjoyed this. Thank you to Jennifer Barrett for spending part of her day with us. You can learn more about her book at jenniferbarrett.com or thinklikeabreadwinner.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay tuned for Friday's episode where I'll continue to answer your money questions. Our special guest co-host is Brittany Castro, certified financial planner and founder of Financially Wise Women. I hope your day is so money. So money.